All right, welcome to LifeBridge, everyone. Glad you guys are here. Again, I just want to reiterate, uh, make sure you put that Super Night on your calendar. And it's a great opportunity to not only attend yourself, but it's a great opportunity to invite a friend or invite somebody to, uh, to come, somebody, somebody who perhaps uh, wouldn't be interested in coming to church, but would love to come and just hang out with you and get to know uh, some friends at church. It's a great opportunity for that. So. Put that on your calendar, and make sure you make that a priority. should be lots of fun and lots of good soup and chili. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon today. Lord, God, we praise your name, glorify you. We thank you for your, your goodness, your kindness to us in all things in life. But Lord, today, right now, just for the opportunity to gather here, we're thankful for our church community, our church family, that we can love one another, and Lord, we can be loved by others. So Lord, I pray that you would uh, call us. Move us as you're stirring in our hearts today through your word, through the worship, through our conversations with each other. Spirit of God, would you just be active in us? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, our campaign is called The Third Way. We started this last week. So this is week number two in this new campaign or teaching series, you may think of it as. Same thing. Uh, We're calling this The Third Way. Our culture is noticeably... Increasingly more polarized, where in so many spheres of life, there are fewer and fewer folks in the middle with nuance, and more and more moving to the extremes, to the poles. And so, what that does is it creates this like tension, Uh, it creates this draw in our lives to go towards the poles. The way I think of it is I often feel like a piece of metal stuck between two magnets, right? If you put a piece of metal in the middle and two magnets on each side, uh, they're going to pull it one way or another, and that's often how we feel. We're pulled between Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, pro this, and anti that. We're constantly being drawn to this ideology or that ideology, and we're constantly being drawn all the way that if we accept one part of an ideology, then we are are required to then accept all of that way of thinking. For Christians, there's a better way to live. For us, it is following the way of Jesus. There has to be a governing principle or governing ideology that all of the other things that we think are true and and good in the world kind of fall under so that that governing ideology rules the day. That if uh, that other ideology we're following diverts from the way of Jesus, which way will we choose? Are we going to choose the way of Jesus or are we going to choose another way? Here's our big idea, really, for the entire campaign, as I'm introducing this for us a couple weeks here. For Christians, our way of life and our thinking must first be informed by Jesus. Okay, Jesus must be that first ideology. His teaching, his way, the way he lived, what he taught, primarily the Sermon on the Mount, but really through all of the Gospels, what he taught must govern all of our other ideologies. And when they divert from the way of Jesus, we follow the way of of Jesus. <clears throat> because in following the way of Jesus in today's culture, we will often divert from one pole or the other pole. Again, politics is just kind of an easy example, and we're coming into a midterm season, so it should be fresh on your mind. 
because it's kind of everywhere. Think of Jesus teaching. Yeah. Mike is being, doing strange, th- strange things. Did it last week, too. So I'll use this guy. Okay, so if we're following the way of Jesus, we will inevitably divert from other paths, especially in politics, which is kind of the easy example that's fresh on our minds often right now. We'll often divert from one or the other party, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That doesn't align with either pole, right? The extremes on either end are slandering and demonizing each other. That is not the way of Jesus. So we will, in some ways here, must divert from one ideology or the other and be governed by the way of Jesus. Blessed are the meek. Jesus refers to meekness as an indication of the blessed life, being blessed by God. In our political landscape, which poll demonstrates that worldview? (laughs) Neither, right? Neither. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. In our cultural landscape, uh, general society is characterized by high anxiety and worry and fear. The way of Jesus calls us to live a different way, to live a way of trust in our sovereign God. And so we will divert from this ideology or that ideology if we are indeed following the way of Jesus. In some things, we will find commonality and common ground, and that's okay. That's to be expected. But when they seem to come into conflict, which way will we choose? Which way governs the others? Is it the way of Jesus as we profess, or is it another way? Last week, what I tried to do is just present the way of Jesus as the better way to help... to. I'm praying for you that the Spirit of God would produce in you a desire for the way of Jesus. That as you reflect on it, as you think about Jesus, his teaching, his life, all of it, that it would be just irresistible. That you would pursue him above all else. And I wanted to leave you with the picture that I have in my mind of discipleship to Jesus is just like walking kind of with your head down, following the heels of Jesus on a dusty road. So wherever Jesus goes, you go. What he says, you listen. His way of living is the way of living that you adopt as well. So I want you to get that picture in your head as a picture of discipleship, is just following Jesus. And we do that through reading his word, spending time with him, communing together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, focusing our attention on Christ. Today, we're exploring a general ethos in our culture, which is just, talk about an (laughs) I read the official definition that I looked up in the first service and they just glazed over. So an ethos is basically just some, it's a a way of thinking or a characteristic in our culture that we kind of just take for granted. It's a value that we have that we often don't even think about. And because we're all born and raised in a certain culture, often to see the ethos of a culture, you have to kind of like move away from that culture. And then you're like, oh, now I see it. You just didn't see it before because you were so ingrained in it. It's just baked into our culture, right? And it's just a part of life. And you just come to accept it and adopt it as true without ever critically examining it. And this is one of those ideas that seeps into so many different ways, so many different spheres of our life and in our culture. 
And I think it's best illustrated by uh, this video that I came across this week. I linked you to the full video in the devotional. It's a video, a YouTube video by a guy named Scott Began, and he, uh, it's a video of him as a Little League baseball coach. The kids are like 8 to 10 years old. And again, I encourage you to watch it. You can check it out in the devotional on Monday. So he's given the pregame speech. Um, if you've been in sports, you've been there before. The pregame speech is supposed to kind of, you know, get you all amped up and rah-rah, right? And now that I've, like, coached teams, that's hard. It's hard to do, especially when the kids just don't care and they're just staring at you, right? It's pretty, pretty tough. But anyways, so he's giving the pregame speech to his group of 8- to 10-year-old kids in Little League Baseball. It's a big game. And he tells them something like this. He says, there are two types of people in this world, winners and losers. Every time we step onto that field, we want to be winners, if your dad told you to just come out here and have fun, I'm sorry, but your dad's a loser. <laughs> it's, it's satire. It's not real. He's, it's all staged, but it's funny. It's very funny. <laughs> You'll laugh later. Okay, so, <laughs> but what he's doing is appealing to this ethos, this general idea that we have in our culture of there's winners and there's losers, and it's been ingrained in us just within our culture, and that's all there is, right? And we want to be winners, right? So we're going to win. Sports is a big one, which in a setting like this, so even if you're not into sports at all, I am, right? But if you're not into sports, you tend to kind of undervalue the effect or the influence that sports culture has on our culture at large, okay? It's massive, okay? There's a reason why there's NFL games on on Thursday, Sunday night, and Monday night now, and why there's so much money in sports and in football and in, in the major sports, because it's very influential in our culture. Lots of people are watching this stuff, and this influences our culture in ways that we may not even be aware of. School. Even, even our educational system is in part built on competition, right? You have to get good grades so that you can get to the next, into the, the good school or into the good classes or into the good college or the good graduate program. You, you have to compete in order to get into that setting. <clears throat> you have to win. It's in the workplace as well. You have to up your resume, make your resume look better than others so that you can then get that job you want. Our whole economic system is kind of based on this winning and losing, competition-based ethos. And again, in those spheres, I have zero problem with it. I think that's great. It's good. It's fine. It works. It's good. It's all good. Sports love sports. The problem, however, yeah, I love competing too, so don't get me wrong, all right? I won't be making a chili because I'll lose, and I don't know how to cook. So... The problem is when that type of thinking filters into your Christian faith, okay? It's fine to pursue winning in sports. That's what you're there to do, right? It's what you're there to play for. There's more that happens there. I could, I could go into a long rant on that, but I won't. What happens, though, is if we pursue winning at all costs or trying not to lose at all costs, what happens is then we abandon virtue and obedience to God in the name of winning, We often hear that the stakes are too high for meekness, 
in the public square. We hear we need to fight fire with fire. Or we've tried kindness and goodness and it hasn't worked. So now we need a new approach. In the end, that framework, that ethos, is an ends justifies the means mentality. And that is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. That will lead us to do things that are unethical. That will lead us to do things that are disobedient to God in the name of winning. And that is not the way of Jesus. I would argue that in this winners and losers framework, the perspective is always too small. The vision too narrow and the timeline is too short. The vision is too narrow in that we can't see all that God is doing. Even in the moment, we don't know what God is doing globally. God may be moving in different areas of the globe. God's moving in China. God's moving in the Middle East in ways that we have no concept of, right? We don't even know what God's doing in the heart of the person sitting next to us. Our vision is too narrow. We don't know God's big plan. Only he does. Our timeline is too short. When we get engrossed in this idea of, I have to win every battle now, we miss the longer picture of God's timeline. We miss what God is doing. We know that God will win in the end, but we want to win now. We become so obsessed with winning now that we're not willing to take a loss now if it is obedience to God, trusting that he will win in the end. Our big idea for today is that in the way of Jesus, obedience is more important than winning. Obedience is more important than winning. This has to become our perspective, is to obey the word of the Lord, to do what God calls us to do first and foremost, and leave outcomes to him. Because if you're honest with yourself, you can't control outcomes anyways, most of the time. (laughs) And if you're honest with yourself, you don't even know what the best outcome might be in lots of cases when you look back on your life. We'll see an example of it in a moment to help make it more concrete. My token C.S. Lewis quote of the week is this, it is not your business to succeed, but to do right. When you have done so, the rest lies with God. So profound. It is not your business to succeed, but to do right. When you have done so, the rest lies with God. So then we are free to follow God's laws, to love God and to love one another, even our enemies. We're free to be self-sacrificial, to give, to be hospitable, even to our enemies, because we don't have this perspective of win at all costs. We can do what is right and leave outcomes in the hands of God. We see this all throughout Scripture. Uh, One of my favorites is the Battle of Jericho. (laughs) If you remember the story, God tells the people of Israel as they're entering into this promised land to go into war. uh, And uh, (laughs) Joshua is the new leader. He's just taken over from Moses. And God tells him, go ahead and walk around the city a bunch and yell at it, and it'll fall down. Joshua had to be thinking in the back of his head, like, dude, nobody's going to respect me if this doesn't work. Like, (laughs) if this doesn't work, I'm done. Like, this whole thing is over. 
Like, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life for war. This is a bad battle strategy. And yet he does it. And God shows up. And he was obedient to what God called him to do. Think of Moses holding up his hands over a battle. right? <laughs> How could that possibly affect the outcome of this? He's got people holding up his arms for him, right? He's just obedient. Abraham and Isaac. Saul is a negative example of this, which we'll cover in the devotional as well. Obedience is more important than the outcome. Obedience is more important than winning. Ultimately, we see this in the life of Jesus, and we're going to see it in the epistle of 1 Peter later on today. Matthew 26, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is after he has uh, gone off by himself to pray. Uh, he takes his three closest disciples, and he leaves them, Then he goes and prays by himself a little bit. And while he's praying, he says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So the cup refers to the outpouring of God's wrath and the suffering that he's about to experience on the cross. So he says, God, please, if there's any way you can take this from me, but not my will, your will. He surrenders to the will of God even if it means suffering. And then, soon after that, we read this. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, that would be Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, a little bit of background information. This is, this is, a little, this is speculative, for sure. But some scholars are trying to make sense of, of Judas' actions in Judas' life. So Judas betrays Jesus here. He, he collects money to betray Jesus. But then after he betrays him, he has a sting of conscience, right? He, he returns the money, and tragically, he takes his own life. So we're trying to make sense of why. Like, what was he thinking here? And one idea proposed was that perhaps what Judas was trying to do is Judas was from Iscariot, which is uh, a town that was known for being radical, um, the town that was known for being, uh, producing a lot of zealots. So zealots were those who wanted to overthrow the Roman occupation militarily. So they wanted to go to war like now and end this thing. So some speculate that what Judas was trying to do here was kind of spur Jesus on. Saying, Jesus, I've been following you for three years. You claim you're the Messiah. We've seen you do all these amazing, miraculous things. We've seen you bring somebody back from the dead. We've seen you heal people. We've seen you calm storms. We've seen you, like, multiply bread and fish. And, like, so, like, we th I think you're him. You kind of just need a little, a little push now. So some speculate that what he was doing was trying to give Jesus that push. And say, now if we corner him, he'll come, boom. He'll come out with power. He'll destroy the people that are coming to arrest him. And then... He'll start his military campaign and go overthrow the Roman Empire. And we'll be an independent nation once again, and he'll reign as the Messiah. Speculation, okay? Totally speculative. We don't know Judas's motives in this or not. But that's what he was trying to do. We know the, how this story plays out. We see how he's trying to control the outcome apart from God's will. Juxtapose that with Jesus and how Jesus is willing to suffer himself in order to follow God's will. 
Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, John tells us that it was Peter who did this, which, <laughs> which I, again, speculation, I love this. So, like, Peter likely dictated the Gospel of Mark <clears throat> to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. Um, and he leaves out his name in there in the Synoptic Gospels. But then John writes his gospel, and he includes Peter's name. I wonder if Peter was just like, you know, it was hectic, it was chaotic. I mean, nobody, nobody really knows who drew the sword and started cutting at people, right? Like, I mean, who can really remember that so well? And John's like, I remember. I remember. <clears throat> That's how I imagine it playing out. I don't know if it did or not. He drew it and he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And this is what I want to focus on here. And band, you guys can come and get set up. He said, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus is saying, hey, guys, Peter, like, I could win. <laughs> you guys have been following me for three years. Like, do, do you think I can win in this conflict if I wanted to? Jesus has the power. Jesus has the authority to avoid being arrested, to overthrow the Roman Empire if he wanted to. He could at any moment call down five legions of angels. Or what does he say? More than 12 legions of angels. But he doesn't. And so we know how the story goes. Jesus is arrested. He's put on trial. He's convicted, and he's murdered. And it looks like he lost, right? But we know that Jesus didn't lose. He wins. In the end, again, our timeline is often too short. We think we have to win in, every, in any and every circumstance. We can't see what God is doing. Who could see what God was doing here? Jesus knew. Jesus knew the will of the Father, but not everybody knew that. Peter didn't know that. That's why he cut off the dude's ear, right? Peter's like, all right, this is it. Let's fight. I'm in. Let's go. Put me in, coach. <laughs> Jesus is like, no, nah, man, that's not the way. He didn't see what God was doing. His timeline was too short. And we'll see how his perspective changes when we come to 1 Peter. <clears throat> This is also why I kind of laugh at some of the, like, the stakes are too high ways of thinking. <laughs> Jesus has here hanging in the balance in this decision the redemption of creation, the sin of the elect, right? <laughs> were, were the stakes high for Jesus to submit to the will of the Father here? Absolutely. They couldn't have been higher. Avoiding suffering and brutal pain 
was hanging in the balance for Jesus, and yet he submits to the will of the Father. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, we thank you for your example of how we are to live. That, Lord, obedience is far more important than winning in every circumstance. Lord, we confess that we don't see all ends. We don't see what you're doing in all of creation. We don't have your master plan. Only you do. And, Lord, we tend to think in too short of terms in the here and now. We don't think long term like you do. So, Lord, help us to surrender to your will. Help us to surrender to what you are calling us to and to obey you in all circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing together and I'll come up and apply this in a few moments. If you guys need prayer while we're singing, Michael and Kathleen are... Father God, Lord, we... what we're singing that you have no rival that you have no equal that you reign forever and ever Lord and so Lord we are free to surrender outcomes to you we are free to surrender to your will because Lord you are sovereign we really believe that we believe that in our day to day life we believe that for our country. We believe that for our world. So, Lord, thank you that your burden is light and we can surrender that to you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments here. <clears throat> our big idea today, again, is in the way of Jesus, obedience is more important than winning. Obedience is far more important than winning. Now, if you're a critical thinker <laughs> or just a skeptical person, perhaps as we were going through the teaching of Jesus and in the, the life of Jesus, your thought was, yeah, Jesus was doing something pretty spe specific there. <laughs> Jesus was doing something pretty special. He was... He was going to the cross. He is the Messiah. He is God in flesh. He's doing something that perhaps we aren't supposed to necessarily follow. Jesus leading in that, in what Jesus teaches us there. If that was your thinking, we're going to look at the, the writing of First Peter, where Peter, remember, last we heard of Peter, was cutting off a dude's ear, trying to protect Jesus, Right? Now, when we zoom out, or I guess we should probably zoom in, <laughs> when we look at that event specifically, what Peter was trying to do is a noble thing, right? It's like, he doesn't want them to take Jesus. He is, has given up three years of his life. He's given up everything to follow this guy. He's, he's going to protect him. He's going to try to save him from being arrested. So when we just look at that from our purview and our perspective without taking into account the will of God and what God was doing, we can say, huh, I get it. <laughs> it's not so bad. Maybe I do the same in those circumstances. But what we now know, and Peter now knows, is God was doing something that he could not have foreseen, that he just didn't get in this moment. Remember, our vision is often too narrow and our timeline too short. 
God had the bigger picture vision of what he was doing. And he had the longer timeline to know that this is what Jesus had to go through in order to rise from the dead. Peter didn't get it at this moment. But when we come to 1 Peter, which is years later, after Peter has experienced the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, he's experienced Pentecost, he's experienced the book of Acts in the first few years, the early years of the church, he's experienced all of that, and now his perspective has changed completely. He's no longer concerned with just winning and controlling all outcomes. He now knows to leave those things in the hand of God and continue to obey. And he says, as much. In 1 Peter 4, 19, this is a summary of a good bit of his teaching. He says, so then, those who suffer according to God's will. That's probably one of the first things that changed in Peter's thinking was recognizing Jesus' suffering as being a part of God's will. And that is often a bitter pill for us to swallow. But as we read through Scripture, it is undeniable that Jesus going to the cross and suffering was a part of God's will. Peter would eventually be put in prison. Peter would eventually be hung on a cross upside down. Paul would be put in prison and suffer a great deal for the gospel. And what the early leaders of the church had to reckon with is sometimes suffering is in the will of God. And when that comes, which is the people that he's writing to are suffering. They're being persecuted. They had been dispersed from Jerusalem and they were sent into Asia Minor, into various cities throughout Asia Minor, where they didn't receive a very warm welcome. They were being persecuted. They were uh, economically, socially ostracized. They were being put in prison. They were being questioned and beaten because they claimed Jesus as Lord and not just Caesar. And eventually they would be martyred and killed, but that hasn't happened quite yet. And this is part of Peter's message to them. Note the change in Peter's life. He goes from, let's fight, ride or die, Jesus, I got my sword, let's go, to this. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. He gives us two things to do here. One is commit themselves to their faithful creator. Now, those aren't the normal words that he uses to talk about God the Father, so he does so specifically, intentionally. God is faithful, as we were just singing Remember, we can't see the bigger picture. We can't see all outcomes. We don't know God's big, grand plan. But we do know that he is faithful. And we know that he is powerful. That God is our creator. And he is faithful. And when we read through scripture, the, the story of Jesus included in the cross and then the resurrection and the life to come and everlasting life and all of that, what we see is that even in the darkest hour when Peter is in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and even when Jesus is hanging on the cross or when he's being put on trial and Peter's denying him three times, as Peter looks back at that and he says, I didn't see it, but God was faithful. And what God was doing was far greater than what I could have ever imagined. That although Jesus died and in the darkest hour we were left wondering what just happened, he rose Jesus from the dead. And God's victory was so much greater than he could have ever imagined. But it came by losing first. It came by losing first. God is faithful and God is powerful as creator. And then he says, and continue to do good. Keep doing good. Just keep doing good. 
Keep being obedient to what God has called you to. Just keep doing the things, the ethics, the, the life that he has called us to in scripture. Keep loving your enemy. Keep showing mercy. The ends don't justify the means. Keep speaking with kindness. Keep giving generously. The stakes aren't too high. We don't fight fire with fire. We continue doing good, even if it means suffering, even if it means pain, because we don't see all outcomes. God does. We don't know his timeline. Only he has that. We don't have to carry the full burden of changing the world. We carry the burden of obedience to continue doing what God has called us to. Specific missions, the things that he has given you to do in this life, and the general commands and imperatives that we're all accountable for in Scripture. Mercy, love, kindness, charity, all of those things. We're called to continue doing those things, no matter what the cost no matter the stakes. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I'm watching the Lord of the Rings series again, and I'm, I'm back in, baby. I am, oh, I am just loving it, and uh, it's got me thinking Lord of the Rings again, and I'm all into it. So gear up. You're, you're going to get a lot of Lord of the Rings illustrations probably soon. You're like, you already give a lot. There's going to be more. Um, this is one of the main themes of the entire series, right, is you don't see everything that's taking place. So keep doing good. <laughs> There's a bigger picture plan at play that you don't know about. How many times throughout the story do the characters just like go into some hopeless battle, right? And then something that they could have never foreseen happens and they come out okay. That's what Tolkien's trying to tell you. <laughs> keep doing the right thing. Keep doing good. You don't see the bigger picture of what God is doing. Ultimately, one of the where this culminates in the story is when Frodo's having a conversation with Gandalf, and he says, uh, they're speaking of Gollum, and he says, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. And Gandalf replies, and he says, pity. It's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Right? He says something like, my heart tells me that Frodo's got something left, or that, that uh, Gollum has something left to do here in this story. What he's getting at is, what Tolkien's trying to communicate to us is very simply that there are so many times throughout the story where if you're like me and you watched it the first time, you're like, why doesn't somebody just kill this rat, right? <laughs> somebody, please put an end to him. What he's trying to tell us is it's never right to take a life. That it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. That instead of him murdering him, <laughs> like this, God had a bigger picture and a bigger plan. And it was his mercy and his pity that led to the outcome that they could have never foreseen, right? That Frodo would have caved in the end, and he, in order to achieve the outcome, Gollum had to be there, right? What Tolkien's trying to communicate to us is very simply, keep doing the right thing. Keep entrusting yourself to God and leave the outcomes to him because we don't know all ends. We can't see what God is doing in all things. So keep doing good and entrust yourself to God. A few chapters earlier, First Peter, Peter writes this, to this you were called. He's talking about suffering, 
for righteousness, doing the right thing and still suffering. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So there it is. He's pointing to the cross. He's pointing to Christ's suffering and not doing anything wrong as a model, as an example for us to do the same, to keep doing the right thing, even if it means losing. He says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What Peter is encouraging the churches to do and what Jesus did, it reminds me of a lot of aspects of the civil rights movement. I read a quote a couple weeks ago by former Democratic politician John Lewis, who passed away in 2020. And in part, I'm bringing this up to conflate some of your categories, <laughs> just to be just brutally honest with you. <laughs> he said this in an interview in 2004. He said, in preparing for the sit-ins in the civil rights movement, he said, we, we felt that the message was one of love. The message of love in action. Don't hate. If someone hits you, don't strike back. Just turn the other side. Be prepared to forgive. That's not anything any constitution, that the constitution says anything about. It's forgiveness. It's straight from scripture. Reconciliation, he says. Now, Jesus, civil rights movement as well, they weren't caving on justice. They weren't saying, ah, forget about it. We're okay. No, they, they were still pursuing justice, right? Nobody could say what happened to Jesus was just. But yet, they didn't multiply evil with more evil. They continued to do good. Even when you're struck, don't strike back. Turn to them the other side. Forgive. Reconciliation. That's what love requires of us. And that is the way of Jesus. And now, Peter goes on. And I think as he's, as he's trying to encourage them in their daily life to, to persevere, to continue doing good, entrust themselves to God. Because even as he says here, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Nobody's getting away with anything. If we really believe that God is the final authority, if we really believe that God will judge all of creation, then we're free to do the right thing. We're free to love and leave that outcome in the hand of God. In thinking of that, and what Jesus did on the cross and thinking of his experience on the cross, I think Peter now just kind of transitions. And again, just like Paul, Peter does the same thing. As he's talking, he just like, as he starts thinking about Jesus, he just gets so overwhelmed by Jesus that he has to go here. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He's quoting the Old Testament scripture there. So what Peter is saying again is, guys, I, I didn't see it, but this is what God was doing. <laughs> like if God had done things my way and sought the outcomes that I wanted, you wouldn't have the righteousness of Christ. He missed the bigger picture. He didn't even know what the win was. And yet he was willing to cut off somebody's ear for it. But now looking back, he sees what Jesus was doing. He sees God's bigger plan. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What God was doing in Jesus was bringing you back to the good shepherd, was bringing you in to the family of God, to where he is now the overseer of your souls, to where now he is the one whom we are following, and we are in Christ now. And now Peter sees the bigger picture. He didn't get it before. And now what Peter's encouraging the churches to do is entrust themselves to God and continue doing good. Because we are in Christ, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We are to follow him in all things because he has made us new. Because through the cross, through Christ losing and then rising from the dead in victory, we have the righteousness of Christ when our faith and trust is in him for our salvation, not in our own righteousness and in our own deeds. God is trustworthy and faithful in that. He will be trustworthy and faithful in your life as well. Even if your view is too, too small and your timeline is too short, he will be faithful. We're going to take communion together to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done on the cross and how our righteousness is in Christ and that because Jesus submitted to the will of the Father and walked to the cross and he didn't use his power to call down 12 legions of angels and destroy those who came to attack him right? and win, win that fight. We're made new in Christ. Again, when our faith and trust is in him for our salvation, he is our righteousness. And so, when we take communion, we're remembering what Christ did for us. We're acknowledging the suffering that he was willing to endure to obey the will of the Father. And he's our savior, and he's our model. The elements are up here today. I'll spread them out. Front rows, you guys come forward. When the row in front of you finishes, come forward, grab the communion elements, and come back to your seat and hold on to them. We'll pray for them and partake together. Would you guys pray with me first for the bread? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. That, Lord, you submitted to the will of the Father. You went to the cross. You endured the pain and the suffering for us. And Lord, in your doing, you made a way for us to be with God. You've taken our sin upon yourself. And so Lord, our faith and trust is in you, in your sacrifice on the cross, 
that you have taken our sin and given us your righteousness, that we can be holy before God. We remember you as we partake. Let's partake of the bread. you pray with me for the cup. Lord, thank you for your blood that was shed for us, your blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That Jesus, we are justified. We are made holy before you because of what you did on the cross. Thank you, God, for your bigger plan. That, Lord, we're not made right with you because of our righteousness or because of our good deeds but solely because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. So Lord, we fully trust in you for our salvation, for our righteousness. And we thank you, Lord, for taking our place, for dying and shedding your blood for us that we might be saved. Let's partake of the cup together. pray with me one more time as we close. Lord, God, would you move in us, stir in our hearts to entrust ourselves to you and continue to do good. That, Lord, you are our faithful creator and we trust you. Call us to what you're calling us to in this world. Help us to live with righteousness and holiness before you and to trust and know, Lord, that Jesus, you have made us right with God. It is only through your blood that we are saved. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We give you all worship, would you? Lord, stir in our hearts this week to draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys need prayer, Michael and Kathleen would love to pray with you. Please pray with them on your way out. If not, have a great week. Thanks for joining us.